0: Welcome to The Landscape, your show about America's parks and public lands. I'm Kate Gretzinger in Bluff, Utah.
1: And I'm Aaron Weiss in Lincoln, Nebraska this week. On the show today, we will grab a beer with John Lesche. He used to be the top lawyer at the Interior Department. Now he's a law professor who just wrote the definitive history of public lands policy in America. You may have noticed this is a longer episode, and that is because I had to ask John about just about everything. So trust me, uh, this one is a really good listen.
0: Okay, but Aaron, um, tell us why you're in Nebraska.
1: Sure. So I am here in Lincoln keeping an eye on a Stop 30 by 30 summit that is being put on by a group called American Stewards of Liberty. The American Stewards are at the center of a big new report that we just released this week called the 30 by 30 Disinformation Brigade. Uh, The report connects the dots between extremist politicians and sympathizers uh, like Lauren Boebert and Paul Gosar, also between folks who try to come off as more mainstream, like Nebraska Governor Pete Ricketts and former Interior Secretary David Bernhardt, who is speaking here at this summit this week. The American stewards of liberty are the bridge between those worlds. Their talking points on 30 by 30 and conservation are based entirely on fear-mongering and often flat-out disinformation. Now, we know from poll after poll, we've seen it from Colorado College, nrd did one as well, protecting 30% of America's lands and waters by the end of the decade is wildly popular. That is the the, the core of the Biden administration's America the Beautiful program. So opponents like American stewards, they know this, All they have left is just to shout, it's a land grab, which 30 by 30 very explicitly is not. And then they just make up statistics in many cases to claim that, oh, no, we're already at more than 30% protected, which is just simply flat out false. We're at 12 to 13%. Those numbers are not up for debate.
0: Right. And just this week, the Nebraska Farmers Union actually released a poll showing that 77% of voters in this very conservative state support the 30 by 30 goal. And just about everybody in the state, 95%, according to the poll, support the rights of private landowners to use voluntary conservation programs like conservation easements to conserve their land as working farms, ranches or habitat.
1: Now, that last number is especially notable since the governor here, Pete Ricketts, has spent the last year trying to convince farmers that conservation easements are just some giant trick by, by big green groups. This poll shows really definitively that Nebraska's aren't buying what Ricketts is selling. Uh, If you want to hear more about conservation easements, how they fit into the 30 by 30 picture, go back to our episode with Jay Fetcher from last fall. He is a rancher and conservationist in Colorado who is a huge proponent of conservation easements. Uh, We sat down with him at his ranch where he explained why. Uh, I will drop a link back to that episode in the show notes.
0: Awesome. And one more piece of news before we get to the interview. The Interior Department announced it is restarting oil and gas leases on public land. You may remember that leases were paused for a review of the leasing system last year and then again early this year because of a court ruling that said the department could not consider the cost of carbon released by drilling in its decision to lease public lands. Well, the courts decided to let the Biden administration consider the cost of carbon for now, so the lease sale is back on for June. But the Bureau of Land Management shrunk the acreage of the sale by 80% from more than 700,000 acres down to about 130,000, almost all of which are in Wyoming. In Colorado, the total number went from 135,000 acres to just 5,000. And for the first time ever, the Interior Department is raising the rate companies have to pay on any oil produced from 12.5% to 18.75% bringing the federal royalty rate in line with what drillers pay on private and state land.
1: Now, unsurprisingly, the oil and gas industry is not happy. They are finally being told they are not in charge anymore. They want to keep what they've been doing for the last hundred years, which is to say drilling just about anywhere, anytime, ripping off taxpayers in the process. This lease sale shows that clearly things have changed. Now, you probably also saw that a number of our friends in the environmental community were also not happy that there is going to be more leasing, even at this much smaller acreage. The reason we, the Center for Western Priorities came out in support of this restart in this way is pretty simple. The Interior Department has to work within the laws and regulations that are on the books today. The Mineral Leasing Act of 1920 says the department shall hold quarterly lease sales of eligible land. Could the Interior Secretary just say, nope, I have decided there is no eligible land? Well, she could try. But if there is one thing that we learned during the Trump years, it's that there are limits on secretarial discretion. A whole lot of the damage that David Bernhardt and Ryan Zinke tried to inflict on our public land during the Trump years got thrown out of court because they overstepped their bounds and they didn't follow the law. So secretarial discretion has limits. It can't be arbitrary and capricious. So if you are hoping that Secretary Holland will find there is no more land eligible for leasing, you have to lay the groundwork for it first. And that's going to take a while. It gets back to this top-to-bottom programmatic review of the oil and gas leasing system that we have been waiting for. And from our perspective here at CWP, that is the only way to get you to that glide path that gets you from, say, an 80 percent cut today to a 95 or 99 percent reduction in leasing, effectively ending the program administratively without having Congress to come in and rework the Mineral Leasing Act. But the clock is ticking. A full programmatic review like that in order to hold up in court, has to dot all of the I's, cross all the T's. It is going to take years to get a review like that right. And we are now almost halfway through President Biden's first term in office.
0: Hmm. Well, I imagine this is one of the things you asked John Leshy about.
1: You better believe it. We talked about leasing, about the Antiquities Act, uh, a whole lot more. Our colleague, Lauren Bogard, who's our manager of campaigns and special projects, uh, you've heard her on the podcast before, she joined me and Professor Leshy. We sat down at the bar at the Hotel Boulderado in Boulder together. You will hear her in this conversation as well. So Enjoy. Our guest today is someone whose name is uttered with a bit. Oh, here's beer. We'll we'll wait. (laughs) Thank you. Our guest today is someone whose name is uttered with a bit of hushed reverence in the public lands world. John Leshy was the Interior Department solicitor, aka the top lawyer at the department serving during the Clinton administration. He also served in the Carter administration and for the House Committee on Natural Resources. He has been a law professor both at Arizona State University, then at UC Hastings College of Law in San Francisco, where he's an emeritus and distinguished professor of law. You could say that he has written the book on public lands in America, but even that would be an understatement because he has written books, plural, about the mining law of 1872, about water law, federal resources law, even the Arizona state constitution. And now he has topped all of that with what I'd say is the definitive political history of America's public lands. The book is called Our Common Ground. It is 700 plus pages long, but I will say remarkably readable thanks to the the amount of ground you set out to cover. So, Professor John Leshy, welcome to the podcast.
2: Well, thank you very much, Aaron, and delighted to be here.
1: (laughs) Let's talk about the title of your book first, Our Common Ground. On the one hand, that certainly could be interpreted as a literal reference to the the history of our shared public lands, but it also feels somewhat hopeful or or aspirational, even?
2: Absolutely. Um, You know... The title I had the title before I kind of developed the themes of the book but the themes of the book I think fit the fit the sort of noble aspirations of the title in the sense that the story I tell which is really as you say a political history of the federal lands it's the political decisions that led to the public lands we see today and the one of the major overriding themes of that history from the very beginning is how it brought the American Polity together, not divided people. It, uh, and so it really is a, a common ground, a place where a very complicated, diverse country has found sort of a, a theme that, that the overwhelming majority of people like, which is we have a lot of land open to all and managed primarily for conservation, open space, cultural resource protection, natural resource protection, wildlife, et cetera, et cetera. So it is our common ground.
1: Going back to the colonial days, as land was being seized from indigenous tribes, sometimes via contract, often by force, it was not necessarily a foregone conclusion that so much of this land would end up then belonging to the American public in public hands. There, was there any, any model for that uh,
2: Prior to the, the creation of the country um, not really, um, and I should make clear that the the core of the story I tell really starts in eighteen ninety uh, you know the dispossession of the indigenous peoples, the Native Americans you know that started not long after Columbus when the European settlers came here and the European countries, and you know by and large, they pushed the Indians aside, as you said the, they did it by contract often, but Often not. And there was a lot of injustice involved and all of that. But that pretty much ended uh, by around the Civil War not long after. Uh, And so it wasn't until after that, after the United States had actually got clear title from the European nations and from the native nations. Uh, to this land, really years after that, that it, the the United States government started to say, you know, we actually ought to keep some of this. We've been busily giving a lot of it away, but we actually should keep some of this for these broad public purposes. That story really began mostly in on a large scale around 1890. Uh,
3: what made you decide to write this book now? And I say that recognizing now could mean it took a long time to write, <laughs> but I'm just curious why why now? Well.
2: Um, I mean, you know, I've worked in this area for half a century. Um, My professional career has been tied up with public lands, and a lot of my recreational experiences are tied up on public lands. So it was kind of a labor of love. I knew a lot about the story, but I thought, you know, nobody has ever really told this story before, uh, comprehensively anyway. And, you know, you tell people in various conversations, idle conversations, you know, isn't it amazing we have a country uh, uh, that loves private property and kind of distrusts the government and particularly distrusts the national government, yet 30% of our land is owned by the national government and managed for this purpose. And, and people say, wow, well, I had no idea. How did that happen? And so I wrote the book to answer that question. This is, this is how it happened. This is how it happened politically. These were political decisions, and so I kind of marched through the key political decisions that, that, uh, that resulted in this. Now, there have been lots of books about specific places on public lands or, you know, history of the Park Service and etc, My book is really unique in being comprehensive because it talks about not just the parks, it talks about the forests, it talks about the wildlife refuges, it talks about the Bureau of Land Management. So it wraps them all up in one story. Um, and that makes it that there hasn't been a book really like this in a very long time.
1: I want to dive right into one of the, I guess, most pressing topics in our world today, which is, the Antiquities Act, and we we just saw this this week, as as we're recording this in mid-April, uh, a collection of National Park Service employees and retirees uh, asking President Biden to break out the pen and start using the Antiquities Act to protect more national monuments. Why why was that law so important at the time Congress passed it? And walk us through that process. Why. Why would Congress, which under the Constitution has the authority to, to manage public lands, why would it delegate that portion of its authority to the executive branch?
2: Well, the Antiquities Act fits very well the pattern I described, which is 1906. Okay, so the, the forest system was created by a law that passed in 1891. So the, most of what we see as the national forest today in the West in particular were all set aside between 1891 and 1909. But in, as that was happening... Uh, a, a, at the grassroots level, uh, a bunch of people uh, in New Mexico saw a lot of the cultural resources and artifacts, etc., grave sites being plundered uh, and were outraged by it and said, we need a law on this. And there was a really remarkable guy, I tell this story in the book, in the chapter, a uh, really remarkable guy who uh, uh, said, we led a campaign. And uh, he got the ear of a Republican congressman from Iowa, a Civil War veteran uh, named John Lacey. And Lacey said, uh, absolutely, came to New Mexico, saw what was happening and said, we do need a law. I want you to go draft it. Uh, And so he went and drafted this law. He consulted everybody and he put together this law. He was not a lawyer, interestingly enough, Hmm. but he drafted the law that was so well done (laughs) that Congress passed it without a single word change. Uh, so everything in the Antiquities Act that we see today was, was, his, uh, was his doing. And it gives the president the authority to uh, protect on lands owned or controlled by the United States, so they have to be publicly owned, uh, to protect objects of historic or scientific interest. Uh, and those words were very carefully uh, selected uh, uh, to kind of open the door, it's the first time actually Congress ever said science is a reason to hold and protect public lands. It also said that people could donate lands to the United States to be held for this purpose. That was the first law to do that. Uh, and so Theodore Roosevelt was president. He took one look at this law and he said, "I like it," you know, <laughs> uh, and. Uh, So he set aside a bunch of of the cultural sites in New Mexico, and then he said, you know, there's this really important scientific object called the Grand Canyon in Arizona. Uh, Now, uh, that's a big, it's a big object. Um, By the way, the, the, uh, the language of the act also says very deftly that the president shall set aside the smallest area compatible with the proper care and management of the objects to be protected. Okay. Now that kind of sounds confining, but if you parse it closely, it depends. It can be very big. If the object is big, like the Grand Canyon... And what is required for proper care and management? Well, that may be setting aside a large area. So Theodore Roosevelt set aside eight hundred thousand acres, using the uh, in the heart of the Grand Canyon using the Antiquities Act. Then he went up to Washington and set aside more than six hundred thousand acres in the Olympic Peninsula around Mount Olympus. So from the very beginning, it was used to create uh, landscape, uh, landscape scale landscape uh, scale. Uh, uh, protection zones basically now they were called monuments and the reason they were called monuments in the statute was because um uh, uh, edgar lee hewitt who was the guy who did this uh, wanted politically wanted to distinguish this from the park service and so he didn't want to call them parks so monument was sort of the word that kind of connoted it's a protection but it's not a park Even though at the beginning, at least, they were all managed by the Park Service. At the beginning, they were managed by the Park Service. Now, you know, these were all set aside by executive action, but Congress quite quickly got on board. And uh, today, of the 63 national parks, I think something like 29 or 30, almost half of them, were first protected by presidents as national monuments. So Congress you know, comes along and says, we want some of the credit, so we're going to put a park label on it, and we'll get this, some political credit for it. So, so it's, a, it's actually an amazing law, and it's an amazing, important part of the public land story. Uh, um, Jimmy Carter used it in the Carter administration to protect 56 million acres of land in Alaska. Uh, as part of the political negotiations leading to what ultimately became the Alaska National Interest uh, Lands Conservation Act, NILCA in 1980. And uh, Jimmy Carter, uh, I actually worked a bit on those proclamations because uh, I worked in the Interior Department then, and uh, he, 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 the idea he used as an object was an ecosystem. You know, we have unspoiled ecosystems in Alaska. Wrangell, St. Elias, you know, uh, uh, really an unspoiled area. Uh, I think the National Monument there is 8 million acres or something like that. So so it's been an amazing law, and you have to give Edgar Lee Hewitt a lot of credit. I mean, he really he did an amazing job with it. So obviously
1: the way President Carter used the Antiquities Act led to Anilka and Congress saying, okay, here's how we're going to now manage public lands in Alaska as a result of that. Were there lawsuits at the time in the same way we saw lawsuits against the use of the Antiquities Act at Bears Ears? Or is that really a newer development?
2: Um, Well, there have been lawsuits. From the beginning, actually, there was a a miner who later became a senator from Arizona... Uh, who, uh, uh, named Ralph Cameron, who was the town of Cameron in northern Arizona, is named after him. Uh, he had mining claims all over the Bright Angel Trail in the Grand Canyon, and he used to charge the tourists, the hikers, to cross his mining claims. And, he, and when Roosevelt set it aside under the Antiquities Act, uh, that kind of helped help bring his business to an end. And uh, so he sued and said Roosevelt had abused the act. Went to the United States Supreme Court in 1920 the United States Supreme Court ruled unanimously in favor of Roosevelt and the, and the act, saying, the Grand Canyon, yeah, it's big, but it's an object of, you know, who, who's to say it's not an object of scientific interest? You know, it's the greatest eroded canyon in the world, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so, so there has been litigation. Uh, uh, almost from the beginning, and, and the Supreme Court would eventually weigh in on that Grand Canyon case. Correct? The Supre- it was the Supreme Court, a unanimous decision from the Supreme Court in 1920, Cameron versus the United States. Uh, so that that provided the judicial approval of what was going on, and then all presidents, almost all presidents, Republican and Democrat, uh, Herbert Hoover used the Antiquities Act quite a bit. Death Valley, Black Canyon of the Gunnison, uh, White Sands—I mean, it's it's got amazing history. Then. Fast forward, George W. Bush, he used it offshore. He was the first president to set aside huge, I mean, tens of millions of acres of submerged federal land offshore, protected under the Antiquities Act. So it's had a bipartisan history. And that is an important theme of the book because, uh, you know, today we think of everything as kind of Republican-Democrat, blue red, you know. And so every political issue people divide on. If you look at the history of public lands, uh, from the beginning, from this 1890 on, it's almost always been bipartisan. Uh, Presidents and members of Congress from both parties have seen fit to uh, support legislation to hold and keep more land.
3: And we see this in polling results, that there's consistent support across party lines for decades for public plan public lands, but, but it's still really hard sometimes to, to move forward. So why do you think it is so challenging to create more protected public lands, and particularly from a legislative route?
2: Um, my answer to that is it's a little bit mixed. It is hard, uh, but it happens, and it continues to happen. Even in the Trump era from Reagan forward you know the rhetoric around public lands has tended to be fairly partisan um, but if you look underneath the rhetoric um, at what actually can happen when people of goodwill sit across the table and say okay now let's address this problem uh, it continues to it continues to happen I mean one example I use is you know Bears ears was seen as a very divisive act right and uh, Trump uh, downsized that and the uh, other Utah monument, Grand Staircase. Two years later, Congress, as part of an omnibus public lands bill, protected a million acres in southern Utah, not far from the Bears' ears, in a bill that was devised by the Republican Congressional Delegation. That's the San Rafael Swell area in that area. So, you know, if you look underneath the rhetoric. The tradition of bipartisan cooperation that gets things done is still happening. It's, it is harder than it used to be because the rhetoric does provide a lot of noise and, you know, sort of confuse people. But look at what Donald Trump signed into law in 2019 and 2020. I mean, the Great American Outdoors Act and the making the Land and Water Conservation Fund permanent. And, you know, those were huge bills. So a big bipartisan win. Big bipartisan win. Now, he didn't crow about it a lot, you know, but, but he did it. You know, another example I use of this you know, sort of don't be fooled by all this hostile rhetoric. Um, one of my favorite moments in the 2016 campaign, which didn't have many favorable moments from my perspective, but uh, Nevada caucuses. OK, Trump is running against seven other people. Right. Ted Cruz is doing his thing about it's an outrage that the people of Nevada don't own and manage their public lands. You know, he's ranting about that. Donald Trump gives an interview with Field and Stream magazine, in the heart of that campaign, in which he said, Cruz is crazy. We love these public lands, and we need to manage and hold them because they're precious. Blah, blah, blah. And he won the Nevada caucuses. I mean, you got to give him credit. I think he, he, he understood that base support. So even though he went on to you know downsize Bears Ears, he went on to sign into law these other major laws. So... I think the case can still be made that it, it is harder because the rhetoric is sharper, uh, but underneath things still happen. So
1: let's talk about that attempt to shrink Bears Ears and Grand Staircase. There was obviously a lawsuit challenging that. Uh, then President Biden restored both the monuments before that case had a chance to even make it out of out of district court. I don't believe it even made it right. to summary judgment. Do you think was there a missed opportunity there to get a, a court ruling on the record that said, one way or the other, what Trump tried to do was within or outside the bounds of the Antiquities Act.
2: Um, there's been a lot of debate about that, a lot of discussion among environmental lawyers who work in this area. Uh, my own personal view is, I don't think it was a missed opportunity. I, I, think, I think it was very hard to predict what the courts were going to do uh, in the end. For, for one thing, Trump did not abolish the monuments. That would have made it a, a stronger case for the environmentalists but he just downsized them now if you look at history boundaries of monuments have been changed by presidents. I mean there's precedent for not, not on the scale of what he did but there's precedent for World presidents. War II
1: in particular yeah
2: I mean Franklin Roosevelt actually took I don't know 30,000 acres out of a, a Grand Canyon National Monument and that sort of thing so so it's muddy The and and Let's face it, you have a federal court system that is increasingly conservative. You've got a Supreme Court that is basically, you know, quite conservative. And, and I don't think we have begun yet to see what they're going to do. But it's, uh, So I, I was never that optimistic that the federal courts were going to, um, you know, uh, say what Trump did was wrong. And uh, so I'm, I'm perfectly happy with what has happened, which Biden has restored it. And uh, uh, Utah, you know, says they're going to challenge but it's been, what, six months? They haven't filed a lawsuit yet, and uh, so we'll see. I'm, I'm pretty confident. I mean, Grand Staircase Monument, which is kind of just like the Bears Ears 15 years before, uh, was challenged by Utah and was put in front of a pretty conservative district judge in Utah who used to be the chief of staff to Senator Hatch. Um, and he wrote a 60-page opinion in which he rejected every challenge. And said that the ground staircase had been lawfully done, and the state of Utah didn't appeal it. And Utah eventually came around, and with the, the SITLA
1: land swap, yeah, sure, sure, and they're making tons of money, sure. thanks to making that sure. monument hole and getting right. Utah more productive state lands as a result, right?
2: Yeah, it's been it's really been a win win, frankly, uh, for the state of Utah, and uh, and of course, you know, I have to say when Biden restored air, Bears Ears, the San Juan County County Commissioners endorsed his action. It had a turnover and a new county commission, but the local government says we did the right thing. You know.
3: Well, let's talk a little bit about President Biden, and it's it's such an important thing that he restored Bears Ears and Grand Staircase, but that kind of brought us back to zero. So he has this opportunity to define his own conservation legacy using the authority granted to him by the Antiquities Act, but he hasn't done it yet. And I'm just curious, based on your own experience, what do you think is the most durable way for him to create new national monuments? Well,
2: I think they know what they're doing. Um, You know, I I have a lot of confidence that um, they will make good decisions when the time comes. I am not concerned about time delay because you can do it your last day in office. I mean, Herbert Hoover, before he turned the reins over to Franklin Roosevelt, I, I think the last week he was in office protected two or three million acres under the Antiquities Act. Uh, so there, there's no real hurry. Uh, another thing that our experience in the Clinton days uh, suggests is, you know, we, we did a... Um, well, let me back up. We did the Grand Staircase in 1996. There was a pretty big outcry. Uh, Congress continued to protect more lands and put more lands in wilderness and stuff, but there was a big outcry. So we kind of waited for a couple of years, and then in 1999, um, my boss, Bruce Babbitt, said, okay, it's time to, to let's do some more monuments, or let's at least tee them up for the president. And so we started going around the West looking at areas that we could make national monuments. And pretty interesting things happened. I mean, one of the things that happened was we went to a place like uh, the mountains behind Palm Springs and said, hmm, that looks like that would be a good place for a monument. And the local Republican congressperson uh, said, well, wait a minute. Let's talk about doing it by legislation so I can get some of the credit. And that's, in the end, what happened. We negotiated a bill uh, that protected it, frankly, you know, more durably, because Congress doesn't reverse itself very often, uh, than it would have been if it had been a national monument. And we were happy to do that. Same thing happened at Steens Mountain in Oregon. Um, you know, a local bill was put together when we when we started talking monument. They said, "Oh, we want some of the credit, and let's do it." And we negotiated a, a, a successful outcome. The same thing could happen, It'd be probably a little harder because, like I said, the the margins in Congress are. Are closer and the rhetoric is is tougher than it used to be, but that could also happen. I could envision, uh, you know, President Biden saying, mm, "I'm looking at a possible monument over here, and if the local members of Congress want to talk about legislating, let's talk and see what happens." So, I think that could happen.
1: Let's talk about another political quagmire, I guess, which is oil and gas leasing. Right now, we just saw. The administration say they are going to resume lease sales, hold one at the end of June. Uh, We were one of the few conservation groups to come out and say, well, given the legal and political landscape, what they did, shrinking the sale by 80% from what it had been, was the best path forward. Um, But other than that, the administration seems to be getting uh, a lot of flack, both from folks who say, climate-wise, we we can't do any more leasing. And on the other hand, from the oil and gas industry, who said, no, we need to keep giving us everything we want and then some, and and dear God, please don't make us pay a fair fair market rate for this. Uh, Do you think that this pathway, where the administration is right now, is the right path? If you were whispering in anyone's ear, what would you say in terms of both politically and legally... And from a conservation standpoint, what's the way forward, given the confines of existing policy of the Mineral Leasing Act, which is 100 years old? How how do you navigate this?
2: It is... I think they've got a huge challenge. I mean, I really have a lot of sympathy for the sort of dilemma they they find themselves in uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. I mean, one of the thin margins in Congress and Joe Manchin, who's a big fan of fossil fuels, you know, and so he's, he's the swing vote in the Senate. So you have to take into account what he is thinking. Uh, and then you have, uh, you know, the Ukraine situation that, that puts another whole complication into all this. Um, I think they're... What I think they're trying to do, and I and I support the, their intent here, is they're trying to to sort of thread the needle and say we're not going to have a complete lockdown because that that would you know mention and the, that would create a firestorm and and uh, be a big problem, uh, but we are also not going back to business as usual, um, and so we're we're downsizing this particular sale substantially. Um, and uh, and we're raising the royalty rate, like you said, and that's really important. Uh, and as you probably know, the royalty rate they are raising it to is actually what states routinely charge. So this is not, so when the oil industry says, oh, you know, this will break and us. And it's still uh, quite a bit
1: lower than Texas, which is on the high end yeah, of states. Yeah, yeah.
2: right, right. So, so I think they're trying to say, you know, not business as usual, But not a lockdown. Now, they've got some hard decisions ahead, for sure. I mean, one of the ones that I've been kind of following is this so-called Willow Project. I don't know if you know, but in in Alaska, National Petroleum Reserve. And and those are existing leases. Okay, they were issued, uh, I don't know, years ago. Uh, but ConocoPhillips, which is the big oil company that has these leases, they have discovered probably, you know, a, a field of a billion barrels or something. I mean, it's a big, rich field. And Alaska, the state, is so heavily dependent upon oil revenue that they're pulling out all the stops. And Senator Murkowski, who is a very powerful figure in the Senate, is, you know, wants Willow to go ahead and all of that. And, uh, Um, So that's going to be teed up for a decision sometime in the next year or so. They have to approve the permits to drill. That's the sort of next step. And uh, that will be one to watch. I'm not, frankly, personally too troubled from a kind of a carbon decarbonization standpoint at issuing a few thousand acres of leases here and there. Most of them will probably never be drilled if you look at history. And uh, uh, they're not going to make a difference in the long run very much. Willow though is a big enough project that that's one to, to really watch in, in terms of the carbon in terms of the carbon output. carbon emissions because you're talking about a new field and if you issue those permits um, you know you're going to open up 20 30 years of development um, and and that would be troubling now it's not to say they have an easy path because turning them down—that's going to be litigated, and you know Alaska will go through the roof and all that. So, so they have some hard decisions ahead. But, but I have a lot of sympathy for the for the political dilemma they find themselves in, and uh, I think so far they're they're doing okay.
3: Well, in addition to evaluating this Willow project, there's another ConocoPhillips operated
2: Alpine Alpine.
3: That's yes. the one I was looking for, which has been. Had a pretty significant gas, natural gas leak. Still going, last I saw. Right. And how how should some, recognizing that there are regulatory procedural structures in place for evaluating a project, how much should something like that, when it's the same operator, how much should a crisis at one place impact a decision-making process at another?
2: Well, probably technically, legally, my answer would be they shouldn't. uh, I mean, unless a company is a complete bad actor, you know, um, what they're doing over here shouldn't probably influence over here. Now, that's not to say, you know, if they if they were negligent in that leak, et cetera, they ought to be fined and blah, blah, blah. You know, uh, you ought to go after them for that. Um, uh, you know, the, the development in the Arctic is, it's, it's ironic that, um, you know, It's very difficult, and one of the reasons it's difficult is because the permafrost is melting much faster than anticipated, and you need frozen earth to build the infrastructure. And so when it melts faster, you have delays, it takes a longer time, and it's more costly and all of that. Um, And so ConocoPhillips is going to put in these chillers. (laughs) To, to keep, I mean, the irony is, as they're producing more carbon, which is making things warmer, they're actually chilling the earth around their infrastructure, which requires burning more fossil fuels. Yeah, to which, the I, earth. I know. It's, uh, I mean the irony is just uh, piled on top of each other and kind of makes your head spin. But, uh, but this is the real world. I mean, for, from the standpoint of interior, they, they have these leases outstanding, Conoco's applied for the permits, and they're going to have some challenges dealing with that
1: let's stay in the real world then. You mentioned how much Alaska is dependent financially on oil and gas revenue. There are really two other states in that same situation, Wyoming and New Mexico, where we saw with the oil crash in 2020 at the start of the pandemic, uh, a really disaster financially in Wyoming, less so in New Mexico because they had a rainy day fund to get them through it. But as we look to a Quickly decarbonizing economy, an electrified economy in the U.S. Take us through the possibilities there for for those three states in particular. Are there lessons from, say, the the timber transition and pilt and what happened to uh, to timber counties in the West? Do you think would there be a model? You think there?
2: I think there are. I think there are. There there is a pathway to negotiate a, a transition. Uh, that ultimately happened in the northwest with the timber um, you know where you had various kinds of uh, programs to ameliorate unemployment you know in the forestry industry and that sort of thing and uh, uh, you know what happened there basically was that the public lands sort of uh, uh, took the hit. I mean, they, they, they basically, we're going to preserve all the old growth we can on public lands in order to let some old growth on private lands be developed. I mean, so that was the sort of trade off. And that's, that's, so public lands actually, protected public lands kind of provide an insurance policy for development on private lands in, in many respects. Uh, Especially because in, they were talking about the spotted owl and habitat. Right. Right. And the same thing happens around Las Vegas with the desert tortoise. I mean, you lock up lands in the rural areas or protect them to protect the desert tortoise. That means you can do more urban development in in Las Vegas. So uh, there are ways. Now, it requires, you know, it wouldn't be an easy negotiation. It would be complicated. But I would hope at some point in the next few years that, let's say, the powers that be in, in New Mexico and in in Wyoming, and Alaska will be harder because it's so dependent, um, but that they try to find a path to cushion the, the negative effects of the transition and, and, and let it happen. Um, I don't think the politics are there yet, but, but they could be, um, you know, because it took a few years to do that in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, I mean, the timber industry <laughs> had to be basically shut down for a couple of years and that kind of woke everybody up and then they started looking for ways to ease the transition and it's been pretty successful i mean i think there you want to talk about mining
3: yes scans long list of burning questions (laughs) to ask john leshy we have so much to talk about all right 1872
1: let's keep going with all the really hard stuff (laughs) this this was something (laughs) that just
3: blew my mind when i worked at the interior department like Wait, 1872. This is Ulysses what we're going. Grant. Ulysses Grant signed it into law. Uh, what? Yeah. Just to put it really articulately. So, on that, why has it been so difficult to update and modernize the 1872 mining law and and what do you what changes need to be put in place so that we can ensure mining is done safely and with minimal ecological harm.
2: Well, you know, I wrote a whole book about this about 30 years ago, thinking, well, it'll be pretty soon before the mining (laughs) law will be changed. (laughs) Famous last words. uh, um, Well, it's complicated, and it's getting more complicated in some ways. Um, uh, This is hard rocks, you know. This is not oil and gas. It's not fossil fuels. Uh, It's copper. It's gold. It's lead and silver, et cetera, et cetera. Lithium um, right lithium, now. Lithium, lithium, and the so-called strategic minerals. Yeah. That's the modern issue that is that is sort of clouding, clouding the whole reform discussion because everybody recognizes that the transition to decarbonize and the move to higher technology is going <laughs> to require uh, larger supplies of some pretty exotic minerals. I mean, copper for one, but cobalt and lithium and some of this other stuff, rare, rare earths. Uh, that are all governed by the mining law of 1872. Uh, and so the industry, basically, particularly the gold industry, which is the biggest use of the mining law, says, yeah, yeah, we're all strategic minerals, you know, so we should facilitate, we should lift the regulatory restrictions that, that are in place and, uh, and turn us loose, you know. Um, and so that argument has some political purchase, uh, but, um, and, and it complicates the idea of updating the mining law. Uh, Now, the, the public lands, I think I'm right in saying this, are maybe the only place on the entire planet where the land owner does not get any return from the minerals those lands contain. Because the United States gets zipped in terms of rental or royalty or bonus bid or anything for gold and silver and, and all these other minerals. If you're a private landowner, you get a royalty. If you're a state landowner, you get a royalty. In fact, Congress told the states in 1927, if you're going to develop minerals we give to you, you have to do it by leasing. You can't use the mining law. So, <laughs> wow. so the mining law abounds with these bizarre kind of contradictions and everything. Um, but politically, you know, it's, it's a important industry in a few places like Nevada and uh, so they dig in and resist change and, and so far for 150 years they've been successful and in... now there has been some change i mean there is environmental regulation to some extent one of the big issues is uh, outstanding now is does the government the government has the power to regulate but do they have the power to say no to a proposed mining operation even if it's a would be an environmental disaster and the government has basically always taken the position, no, we don't have the power to say no. We have to, we have to say yes, but we can put conditions on it. And so the government, uh, one of the things the government does, which I think is ought to be changed, is they approve mining operations that they know or are quite sure is going to cause acid mine drainage that's going to last forever. And so you are creating a permanent pollution problem when you approve this mine. So they approve it with the condition that the company set up some sort of trust fund that is going to create, allow for perpetual water treatment. Uh, Now those trust funds, you know, they don't Mm -hmm. always last and work and everything. And and the history is littered with disasters uh, where you know the company puts up bonds and then they declare bankruptcy and then the taxpayer picks up the cleanup costs. So so it continues to be a big problem. And like I said. it's more complicated now politically because of this critical strategic minerals issue. What would a replacement
1: or an update to 1872 look like?
2: Well, this, the simplest and the, 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 the well-worn path here is a leasing system. You know, instead of having this claim system where you argue about the claims and the, your right to... Mine with the goes with the claims. Just go to a leasing system like we've done successfully for more than a hundred years with oil and gas and coal, and use that as the model. And use that as the model. Um, You know, in the House, they they they're ready to approve a leasing system. The problem, of course, is in the Senate, where um, the the key states like Nevada and Alaska um, can block block reform. We came very close in 1994 actually and one of my big regrets in my time in public service is that we didn't quite get it over the finish line we were we were very close to negotiating a uh, reform bill with the house and the senate and uh, and then we just failed congress adjourned we thought well okay we'll fix it next spring and then oh, that was new kingrich <laughs> new kingrich yeah, yeah. exactly so then the, and that ended it that ended reform so it's been very frustrating <laughs> now i will say one other thing about the mining law there is a very big case case pending in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals right now involving a big, massive new proposed copper mine south of Tucson called the Rosemont Mine. And the environmental groups challenged the Rosemont's plans and said that they had misused the mining law to support this. And it's very technical. I won't get into the details. But the district court agreed and said the mining law does not work here to allow you to open this mine. And it's now in the Court of Appeals. And it's been argued, it was argued a year ago. If the Court of Appeals affirms the district court, that actually could change the political dynamics because it could force the industry to go to Congress and say, you now need to fix this. And if, you, and if that happens, that opens up the whole reform. It, is, it, correct me if I'm wrong, That that
1: involves the, the waste pit and the, the yes. ponds that are going to be yeah. created and whether that yeah. counts under 1872. Yeah,
2: they're using mining claims, which is supposed to be for, for the mineral body, the ore body, for the waste. They're using that for okay. waste dumps. And the district court said that's an improper use of the so money. A, a technical matter that could end up forcing the issue. Exactly, exactly.
1: Let's talk cows <laughs> and uh, and grazing. Uh, High Country News reported recently that over 50 million acres of rangeland aren't meeting BLM's own rangeland health standards. From your perspective, as someone who has worked both on the inside and the outside, how big is a challenge is that? And, and is there a path forward for the agency to somehow keep grazing going, but also say, yes, and ranchers need to work with us so that rangeland actually is healthy?
2: Well, c- certainly there is. The government has clear regulatory authority and clear authority to say no. Uh, that you know, grazing is just doesn't work here anymore, or it's too devastating, or whatever. Uh, but you know, the problem is you've got an industry that's been there for a hundred years and is very dug in and a huge amount of inertia, and they've got a they've got a a, a very attractive cultural uh, the, the, uh, the myth of the cowboy, the myth of the cowboy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's it's very hard politically. It's not hard legally, actually, at all. There, there is one thing that I've worked on for years that ought to be fixed and I think can be fixed and that's the notion that particularly you know there's a 250 million acres of public lands are grazed uh, a lot of those lands I think grazing is probably fine on you know if they're, if they're well enough watered and then the grazing is properly regulated but there's some hot deserts and some places particularly in the southwest where there shouldn't be cows you know they should be off um, and uh, so there is a movement uh, that's gone on for the last 20-30 years to seek to find ranchers who want to be bought out for one reason or another. Their kids don't want to come back and run the uh, operation or whatever. Get philanthropy, philanthropic money to buy them out and go to the government and say, now retire that land from grazing. Perfectly sensible. I mean, this is like free market at work, right? The problem is there's the, the government agencies are so inertial on this that they find it difficult to permanently retire the land for grazing. So if you're a philanthropic investor, are you going to put money into a buyout when the the government could say five years from now, well, we're going to reopen that land to grazing. You're, You're not getting what you paid for, right? Now a lot of these deals have been done in a handful of places with legislative support uh, in other words, you go to Congress, the, the local congressman, and the local rancher says, "I really want to buy out. I got a buyer, but we need to have the law mandate retirement in order for the investor to put up the money." And that's been done in several places uh, around here and there. We need generic a generic law to do that. Um, you, you may remember Donald Trump. Uh, some some um, uh, conservation groups bought bought out some of the uh, from willing sellers. Uh, some of the grazing permits in the Grand Staircase and went to the BLM, and the BLM said, Okay, we'll retire them. Uh, I mean, they retired them in the plan, wasn't permanent though. And then when Trump came in, the BLM suddenly said, Okay, we're gonna reopen this to grazing.
1: And, and there's not a mechanism to permanently, right. what, what you would do a conservation, a permanent right. conservationism on private land, there right. is no federal mechanism for that. No
2: no, no generic mechanism. And and now there are proposals that have gotten some legs. Uh, Martin Heinrich in New Mexico has a a generic proposal that would basically say, if there is a a voluntary buyout uh, and the permit is turned in, the government shall retire the land permanently. And that, that fixes the problem. But if you leave it up to the agency, you always have the problem, the agency can change its mind. Uh, so that's a little fix, but it would actually be pretty important. And I think if that fix were in place, you would see a, a good number of buyouts in some really, really um, uh, contested areas. And uh, and it would be a great thing because, frankly, from a rancher standpoint, often the the most destructive allotments from an environmental standpoint are the hardest to manage. And so they're the ones often they want to kind of sell. They'd like to would, get would rather out get of
1: out of anyway. We haven't yet said the words. 30 by 30 in this conversation, but it seems like that is the kind of thing that would move the needle towards just putting acres on the board that are protected lands, if you are able to, to permanently retire grazing land and ensure that the, the ranchers are appropriately compensated for those permits.
2: Yes. Yes, uh, it would. But that's complicated, too. In a way, it's kind of analogous to the oil and gas situation you don't want to say i I think it would be problematic for the administration to say we are not going to count any acres that are grazed for 30 by 30 because i think some acres are you know there's there's some places where grazing fits the ecosystem fine if it's managed well and why shouldn't those areas count so you can't have a generic rule uh but uh, maybe 30 by 30 is a is a mechanism to kind of. And, and that gets back to the issue of measuring rangeland health. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Alphabet soup. Lauren wanted to ask about NEPA. Mm.
3: <laughs> sure did. <laughs> uh, so, as we know, the Trump administration did their best to gut the National Environmental Policy Act, which is commonly referred to as one of the bedrock environmental laws in our country. And thankfully, the Biden administration just acted actually announced a final rule that is going to require federal agencies to assess the climate impacts for infrastructure like roads, pipelines, other projects. I just wondered if you could explain for for folks the purpose and intent of this law and why it must remain intact.
2: Well, the National Environmental Policy Act was really the first significant modern environmental law, you know, it was passed at the end of 1969. Um, and uh, it, it's core philosophy is is very simple, actually, which is look before you leap. I mean, uh, if you're going to make a, a federal decision of any kind by any agency that could have a significant environmental effect, you have to consider that. Uh, so it's, it's not substantive. It doesn't say avoid environmental harm. It just says consider the environmental harm as part of your decision-making process when i taught this stuff i used to joke you know that the president uh, before he put his finger on the nuclear button you know would have to say well i'm going to destroy the planet do an environmental impact statement says (laughs) i'm going to destroy the planet and then you can go ahead and push a button because all NEPA says so like seven (laughs)
3: years later when he's through that process maybe if he still has
2: the well still push the button yeah Yeah. Yeah. that raises an interesting question the what they've done with NEPA what, to repair the Trump damage is exactly right. I mean, it's a no-brainer to say if you have to consider environmental impact on something like fossil fuel development, you have to consider climate change. You know, that's part of the environmental impact. have and, to look at the cumulative impacts. Exactly. And Trump, Trump just sort of arbitrarily said no. <laughs> but And Biden is saying, no, you have to look at it. Having said that, however... I think, and I, I probably part company with a number of environmental people on this, but uh, I think NEPA doesn't work very well. I mean, I've seen it from the inside. Uh, and there is, a, there is a huge amount of red tape and there is a huge amount of, frankly, useless data gathering that goes with it. Uh, and I think, I think you could actually streamline the process and try to focus on the big issues. Uh, and it would do everybody good. Now, politically, that's a hard thing to do. But I, but I hope, and, and I don't think the administration is through with their NEPA reform definitely yet. Definitely not. Yeah. Uh, and I hope they took a look at that, frankly, because I do think there are ways to make NEPA work better. Um, now, whether that's, you know, time limits on the analysis or even page limits. I mean, you know, uh, uh, there's a funny, uh, Interior Depart- part of Interior Department lore is uh, uh, there was a Secretary of the Interior back in the... H. W. Bush administration, I think, named Stan Hathaway, governor of Wyoming, and he—he uh, he was. He was not schooled in Washington politics and they brought him a decision like his first day in office and said you know you have to make a decision about this lease sale or something and they wheeled into his office an environmental impact statement that was eight yeah. volumes right and, they, and, and he said what's that and they said well the law says you have to consider the stuff in here before you <laughs> and supposedly Hathaway started actually reading the thing and on the third day he had like a nervous breakdown and had to resign <laughs> so uh, I mean that's, that's the sort of legend Anyway, uh, so uh, there are definitely improvements that can be made, but NEPA is an icon. I mean, it's a political icon, and so sort of tampering with it is is difficult. And there will be, and there's a whole industry behind it now, you know, of environmental consultants who draft these multi-volume environmental impact statements and all that. So you to take it on and say we want to streamline it and focus it and make it work better. It's going to be difficult, but frankly I hope I hope the Biden people
1: at least think about that. I mean that that was the blunt instrument we saw Bernhardt try to do was just page limit time limits yeah. and that's it. That's how we're streamlining right. NEPA and obviously you know that that didn't work and it wasn't going to stick. So how what kind of nuance do you get in there to make it work better without just saying no 30 pages and you're done?
2: Yeah. That's that's the challenge. I mean, and I don't I don't have a magic solution there, but but I really think I think you can make a pretty powerful case that the process is somewhat broken and ought to be fixed, and how to fix it uh, is, is a good question. But, you know, there are a lot of people who deal with NEPA inside the government, and, and I hope they're actually going to talk to some of these career people and say, how do we make this process work better? Because they probably got some good ideas about how to do it. I don't think Bernhardt did that, but, but I think there's a possible way to do that. Before we get back to the
1: book to wrap up because our, our half-hour podcast is rapidly heading towards an hour and I'm not going to cut any of this. Uh, we're we're also at the 100-year anniversary of the Colorado River Compact as the river is rapidly drying up. Uh, Lake Powell continues to drop and, and may not generate electricity uh, within a year or two. Do you think, as someone who's worked on, on the inside, do you think it is possible to address the drought and the water shortage without reopening the compact, ripping it up and trying to get seven states and Mexico back to, to talk
2: about how, how to fix this. Yes, uh, I think it almost has to happen. Um, and I actually look, I mean, I've taught water law. I wrote a co-authored a textbook on water law and all that. So I followed the compact stuff from the very uh, for a long time. And uh, I think it's quite remarkable, actually, that if you look at the compact and how it was drafted in 1922, it has never really worked that well. I mean, it always had some flaws kind of built in from the beginning, some big ambiguities. Uh, but the seven basin states have always found it in their self-interest to get together and negotiate fixes out, you know, out, without changing the compact and without litigating because it's quite remarkable, there is almost no litigation about what the compact means because everybody's scared to death of going what to court happens because they don't know the, the court outcome. There's no, know. there's no case law. It, it's a, yeah, and you're, t- you're rolling the dice, and nobody wants to roll the dice. So in an ironic way, <laughs> the compact uh, is card- sort of impregnable, but does um, facilitate discussion. I mean, there have been a lot of fixes along the way about drought, you know, what do you do with the drought and all that. And so I'm actually pretty confident that the Basin states will continue that success, and the feds are part of that process too, and Mexico is increasingly part of the process, and the tribes are becoming a key part of that process. And I just think, I think they will continue to make progress with very slow, painful negotiations, but without changing, without changing the compact. Now, one other thing about Lake Powell and the drought, um, and back to grazing for a moment, I think you can make a pretty powerful case that the that we're heading for a kind of a dust bowl repeat in parts of the basin. And what is the biggest use of water in the Colorado Basin? Irrigating alfalfa. What's that used for? It's feeding used to cows. sustain yeah. feeding cows, and that's what's going to get cut. I mean, the cities are not going to get cut. You know, the the, the urban dwellers are going to get their water, and so it's going to have a big impact on uh, agriculture, particularly livestock-based agriculture. And that kind of situation happened in the ni- late 1920s and early 1930s, and that's why we had the Taylor Grazing Act. That's why we had the first fundamental reform of grazing. So I think we could be looking in the next few years at something like that, which could could you know open up things like permanent retirements for voluntary buyouts and that sort of thing. I, I think we may be on the verge of a... That all coming a together in, yeah. a, in a way that is forced yeah. by, by climate change. Exactly, yeah. Now, maybe a rash prediction but and maybe i'm too hopelessly optimistic but you know.
3: i'm really glad you mentioned tribal nations having an, a, a a bigger role in what happens next on the colorado river as well i mean 1922 is a long time ago and thankfully there's been a reckoning around some things of that nature so i'm glad you mentioned that as well it's certainly something we'd like to to see going forward
2: well the tribes are actually in a pretty powerful position Uh, not just in the Colorado Basin but elsewhere as well because uh, uh, happily because of a Supreme Court decision from 1908 they have senior quite senior and potentially pretty large water rights uh, all over the place and you know those rights were ignored in many places for a long time but they have they have a uh, they have a cudgel that they can use and uh, I saw this in Arizona when I lived there I mean uh, um Several tribes in Arizona negotiated big deals that Congress approved with the urban areas to, to uh, realize pretty big amounts of water. Uh, and in fact, in Arizona, a lot of the a lot of the agricultural water has moved from non-Indian areas onto the reservations because of those deals. So and that's because they have strong water, right, water rights. So that's a pretty helpful area, actually, uh, where I think things uh, uh, we're going to continue to see a lot of progress on that.
1: I want to get back to the book before we go. You, you've spent an entire career n- knee deep. In public lands and water law and everything we have just talked about. But now you take a step back and you write a meticulously sourced history. How has that process of researching and writing this book changed your perspective on your career and and the law as it as it pertains to public lands?
2: Well, um, in in a way it's made me more hopeful and it, it actually taught me some le- the writing process sort of taught me some le- and the research taught me some lessons I actually didn't know or didn't hadn't fully realized um, that are kind of sort of counterintuitive to people who work in this area I mean I think a lot of people in the environmental community who advocate for protections of public lands tend to think it has to happen through executive action but if you look at history a lot of it happens through congressional action and like I said a lot of it happens with a, you know, bipartisan negotiations. And uh, and that's a hopeful message. And I, I think it's a message people should, should pay more attention to. And, you know, Congress used to, in laws like the Antiquities Act, give the executive pretty broad powers to just go do good, kind of. Um, in the modern age, for the last 50 years, the trend has been the opposite. Congress is playing a bigger and bigger role of writing the rules for particular areas of public lands. You know, 50 years ago, there was never anything like a national recreation area or a national conservation area or a national scenic area or a wild and scenic river or a wilderness area. Those are all congressional labels defined in statute. And that's a process of congressional recapture of authority. And one reason that's important is because when Congress comes to legislate, this is a custom in the Congress that's very powerful. When Congress comes to legislate for a particular area of public lands, the local members of Congress, the senators and the congressman who represents that area, pretty much have a veto. They have to buy in to that legislation in order for it to pass. Um, and... So that has meant every wilderness area that we have, we have hundreds of wilderness areas, more than 100 million acres in the wilderness system. Congress has approved every single acre through legislation that has the approval of the local members of Congress. And that, uh, that makes it more durable, for one thing, because once you get that, Congress has never really, I don't think they've ever undone a wilderness area. You know, once it's done, it's done. Uh, and so that's something that, that I think a lot of people don't understand, and that's an empowerful lesson. And so one of the messages, I hope, comes out of the book is pay attention to the political process and to the legislative process and work to make that work better. Because I think that's, the, that's how you really, in the end, get permanent, permanent change.
3: You've been incredibly generous with your time and sharing your expertise with us. And I feel like we barely scratched the surface <laughs> yes. of all the things. I'll come we... back
2: anytime.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, if you want to come back and yeah, talk sure. about wild horses and birds. Oh, did no, you get there yet? The oh. oh, yeah, oh, thankfully. Clive and Bundy? I mean,
1: no. yes. Yeah. No, why not? <laughs> I mean, yeah, we'll, we'll find time for a part two here at some point. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes. in all
3: seriousness, we'd love to have you back yeah. sure. any, happy to do it. any time. time. And, and just given how much we did manage to cover, is there anything that you want to say that we didn't ask you about, either about yourself or the book or your career? Anything else you want you want to share?
2: Oh, I think you probably covered it. I might think of things later, but that'll give me an excuse to harp on you to invite me back. <laughs>
1: well, Professor John Leshy, the book is our common ground. Thank you so much for your time. And yes, we will definitely get you back on the horn or meet you back at the bar here, uh, because I guarantee there will be more stuff for us to talk about very soon. All
2: right. Great. Great. Thank you. I enjoyed Thank it.
1: You. All right. <laughs>
0: And now for a bit of good news to close out the podcast. The Cherokee Nation and the National Park Service have signed a first-of-its-kind agreement that allows tribal members to gather medicinal plants along the banks of Buffalo National River in northern Arkansas. A number of plants that are important to Cherokee people grow along the 135-mile stretch of river managed by the Park Service. The agreement grew out of conversations between the Park Service and Cherokee medicine keepers. Cherokee Principal Chief Chuck Hoskin said the agreement is a sign the U.S. is headed in the right direction in terms of Indian policy. He told the Oklahoman that working with the Park Service on the agreement was wonderful because, quote, in this era, there's great respect for Native traditions.
1: Well, that is some wonderful news, and that will do it for this episode of The Landscape. Uh, back here in Lincoln, Nebraska, I'm going to go see if I can grab a breakfast burrito with David Bernhardt before his speech. Huh. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening to us.
0: And if you have an idea for a guest or an episode, please send us an email at podcast at westernpriorities.org. And thanks again to John Leshy for joining us. From the whole team here at Center for Western Priorities, I'm Kate Gretzinger.
1: I'm Aaron Weiss.